welcome. Welcome to episode four of Four Color Fanboys, the uh, podcast, not the only podcast, but a podcast where uh, we talk all about comics and whatever strikes our fancy and how much we love these four color little funny books. I'm Brian Zeno, and I'm here with my compatriot and partner in crime, Al Sedano. Wait a minute. Are there other podcasts that talk about comics? How did that happen? I've heard tell, but they, they tend to keep to themselves and hide in the underbrush. And if you look directly at them, they like freeze. So you can't tell it's a podcast. Oh, that's what that was. Yeah, yeah. You see, you saw one, but you didn't realize it. Oh, okay. Sneaky, I, thought it was a, I thought it was a snipe. Yes. Sneaky little bastards, them guys. But uh, I'm very happy uh, this week, this month. I have just discovered that probably the... Um, of all the comics that ever, like, y- there's always comics that came out before you were born or before you started reading comics or when you were too young to uh, uh, have picked them up on the newsstand or whatever. And um, I'm always sort of like looking for convenient ways to track down those sort of really uh, well-regarded ones that, that, that came out when I was uh, a, a baby or before even before I was born. And the holy grail of those I've just discovered is available in convenient format um, on Comixology.com, uh, and that would be the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams run of Green Lantern, Green Arrow, yes. even uh, including the backup stories that they did in The Flash that sort of ended that, that, that partnership. Once the book got canceled. Once the book got canceled. I've actually picked up a few of those on Comicology since well, while they've had sales here and there. Well, the complete collection uh, is available for 20 bucks. Oh, nice. Um, it, it, it's, I guess it's the digital port of the hardcover. The yeah. 2000 hardcover. Um, but anyway, the point is is that I've never read those, but I've read wonderful things about them. And Lord knows that is one of the most iconic and foundational se- uh, slices of comic book history that ever was. My word, Speedy, is a junkie? Yeah, I know, right? And also, why don't do nothing for the black man, Green Lantern? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that story I've read, you know, and the ones I've had actually were, were never those issues though. It's not the hard traveling heroes. It's not the junky ones. It's mm-hmm. the later ones where like they fight Sinestro in space. Yeah, but I mean, it, and just the the Neil Adams art is just mouth watering. That's the only way I can oh, it's still I can, beautiful. I can describe it. It's just luscious. So I am I am very much looking forward to when I um um have some uh, spare dough to throw at it and I will be picking that up and on a future uh, episode of Four Color Fanboys perhaps we can uh, 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 run through it and uh, discuss it and uh, pick it apart but that is for later days today's topic here in uh, episode four the uh, uh, because it's something I've been reading lately it's the John Romita run on Spider-Man late 60s early 70s but the fact of the matter is John Romita didn't um, do all the penciling. Eventually, after after only about a year, I think, he really kind of gave up the pencil duties. He just did the breakdowns, and it was Don Heck or Jim Mooney who would actually do the penciling. So my question to you, Al, um, for our, our discussion on this episode is, uh, is that still considered the John Romita run of Spider-Man? Yes. Oh, really? His name's on it. It is. Well, fine. Well, that answers that then. Jesus. Um, What do we do now? (laughs) Crap. Um, Um, I have an idea. How about we talk about the comics that introduced us to the art form and that we read as children? 
Yes. Okay. <laughs> really? That's it? Okay. No. Next uh, one. Let's, let's do that one instead. And um, if and you don't mind, uh, we discussed this a little beforehand, pulling back the green curtain for some behind-the-scenes knowledge. Al and I... <laughs> curtain? <laughs> the, what? Pay no attention to the green curtain. It's it's really there's nothing behind it. Okay. Um, the uh, we 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 do occasionally. Uh, we we don't just show up and uh, <laughs> and say hey uh, let's let's do a podcast, kids. We uh, do actually uh, sort of um, communicate communicate uh, <laughs> uh, 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 offline, as it were. So words are hard. Yeah. So <laughs> the English language would be fine if it wasn't for all those pesky words. Yes. Uh, <laughs> copyright Joss Whedon. Um, but I, uh, 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 it was clear when we just said to each other, "Hey, why don't? Wh- wh- when did you start reading comics? Hey, okay, and this is when I started reading comics." It actually became uh, clear that I started reading quite a bit before you. Yeah, a couple uh, of years. <laughs> I don't know if that's because I'm older than you or just because I was I was uh, I, I had I had a dealer I had a pusher uh, at a, at an early age. Um, so I figured I if, think both because when we get to that I can pretty much know why. Yeah. Yep. So so here is so so we're gonna get into uh, not 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 too too uh, uh, ridiculously in depth, but. Um, uh, let's look at. I'm gonna start out and tell you uh, uh, what they were that sort of formed my my brain. And contrary to what people might think, who've been listening to this podcast uh, for the first few uh, issues or episodes, if you will, uh, it was not all Marvel all the time in my early days. But the first comic that I remember having and reading was uh, issue 159 of The Amazing Spider-Man, which was cover dated August 1976, and so therefore probably came out uh, May-ish. So I'm thinking this was a summer thing. I would have been four years old that summer, and I guess my parents uh, somehow uh, got their hands on this like maybe took me to maybe took me to a drugstore or something. Saw it on a spinner rack. I have no idea how this came into my possession. I have no idea who bought it for me and why. All I know is that uh, I had it as long as I can remember. I had it, um, and weirdly, I knew who people were. I knew who Spider-Man was. I knew he was Peter Parker. I knew his aunt, his elderly Aunt May. I even knew J. Jonah Jameson. Now this is let's see this is definitely before Spider-Man and Amazing Friends. Right. But wasn't there a did you had seen maybe the 60s Spider-Man? Cartoon? I'm pretty sure I had seen the 60s Spider-Man. I'm pretty sure that had been enjoying some syndication maybe Saturday mornings. Possibly cuz um, this at that time still predate I think even Electric Company. Oh, um no, it didn't not necessarily. This might be right remember. around the time but um But that would only be Spider-Man. It wouldn't be Doctor Octopus I think. Exactly. Cuz they fought things like Bookworm. Yeah, exactly, and Which he never books. spoke, yeah. you know, and there certainly was no J. Jonah Jameson, so I had to have picked that up off of the, I'm pretty sure I must have picked that up off of the Spider-Man cartoon. Or somewhere on the street. But the point is, I cannot remember a time when I didn't know the character of Spider-Man or the basic sort of concepts of his world, so I can't say, hey, I learned this from this issue, I came to this issue, and I read it, and as we will discuss, it didn't exactly turn me instantly into a lifelong reader, but it certainly, I guess, had an influence given that Spidey is still my guy. That's still my my superhero. Everyone, I think, 
who's a long who's a lifelong superhero fan or comic book fan their their tastes may be very wide ranging but my center guy like like always my guy has been spider-man yeah i can see that because i mean if you actually if i actually broke down like favorite characters a lot of them are the more insular i'm unsure the best word is but like non publicly known characters uh-huh. a little yeah. esoteric perhaps yeah. shadow cat from the x oh or always a favorite the ted cord blue beetle from justice league okay those are some of mine or woody from uh valiant's quantum and woody but if you're talking about the main characters, the ones that are the big top tier ones, mm-hmm. it's probably Spider-Man. Yep. So so we're on the same page here then talking about how like I, into my little four-year-old, grubby little four-year-old pause came this issue. Uh, the title of the issue um, is uh, Arm in Arm in Arm in Arm in Arm. <laughs> Something like that. I, I never actually counted. I think I did probably when I was a kid because I reread this thing until the cover oh, yeah. fell off. Um, but arm and arm and arm and arm and arm and arm and arm with Dr. Octopus. And un- I guess I kind of knew on some level, even at that point, I learned to read when I was three years old. Um, that I'm not bragging. I'm just giving you some historical context that, yes, I'm four years old and I'm, I'm actually reading, reading this the, damn thing under words. my own power. Or at least 90% of it, depending on how big the words were and how much you knew at the moment. And the fact that it starts, like, sort of in media res. It's a yeah, continuation. It was the end of a three... It was the finale of a three-part... Um, uh, storyline involving the return of Hammerhead, the steel skulled gangster, and it always makes me laugh. Yeah, and and his vendetta against Doctor Octopus, and Aunt May gets involved because Doctor Octopus. I had no idea how this happened at the time. I only know now that I'm going back and sort of re- rereading the Amazing Spider-Man from the beginning. And as as of the recording of this podcast. I have not yet actually read these issues, but I've read about them, so I know it happened. But the whole boarding house incident when Dr. Octopus hid from the police by uh, becoming a boarder in Aunt May's house. And weren't they dating? uh, I think they had some involvement. I don't know that I don't I I don't know yet if it was actually presented as dating or whether they just enjoyed each other's company. Was that before? I thought that was after this. I thought that was close. Well, I mean, it's after. I thought it was close to 200. But I'm mm-hmm. just saying, don't they almost get married still? I'm, I'm, so, I think that, well, the point is, is that icky. here in my very first issue, I'm saying that Dr. Octopus has some very genuine, despite being a villain, despite yes. being a bad guy, he has some very genuine, um, nice feelings, like tender feelings for Aunt May. So Aunt May gets involved in this little vendetta between Hammerhead and Dr. Octopus. And since Aunt May's involved, well, now Spider-Man's involved. Exactly. And actually, because you had told me this issue, so I had read this last night because it's on the Marvel Digital Comics Unlimited. Okay, good, 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 and yes. And so I read this issue, and the first thing I'm thinking of is, as I'm reading this, is like, wow, this issue must really be in Dan Slott's head, too. Yes. Because... That reads to me the way the characterization of Doc Ock was reminds me a lot of him as Superior Spider-Man doing. I mean, like in this issue, he's trying to do something good. Right, he's, he's trying, trying to save Aunt May from Hammerhead. Yes, but he's a a little too focused on this is my goal and nothing else matters, and he also does get a little too focused on getting Hammerhead because towards the end, when they're in that crazy. Funhouse thing that's spinning and sticking. The yeah, the walls. the climax involves this What's spinning room, the cyclotron, or yeah. whatever those things are usually called on the boardwalk. And Spider-Man and May are in there, and it's getting dangerous. He jumps out because he says, "I care about nothing but Hammerhead." Uh-huh. So he was leaving May, and that's kind of a bit like 
No, you're right. It, now that you mention it, I, I hadn't even made that connection yet, but you're absolutely right. So I have to wonder, like, was this Dan Slott's first issue? It, or could this have been, like, one of his earliest issues? Because Wouldn't this, that be awesome? That, because That would be something that would stick in your head, is usually the first things you see is what's in your head. And if he views Octopus as kind of an anti-hero, yes. maybe that's a reason why that's who he picked to become. Mm-hmm. You know, when he had the idea for, let's say, for Superior Spider-Man, if it came, I don't know, came first, whether it was... I want to have somebody replace Spider-Man, one of his villains, or I want to have Dr. Octopus be a hero. Right. If it was, I just want to have somebody replace him, in his head he might have been like, well, Dr. Octopus. No, that's that's very, very plausible. And, and it makes... Well, let me go back a bit, because I think one of the reasons... I think I got really lucky with this one. Um, maybe not. I mean, it wasn't like... You look back at Spider-Man in what Amazing Spider-Man was in the 1970s, and I think that there was... Um, a very good chance that this was going to be the case. This is absolutely uh, core, textbook, like 100% classic Spider-Man. The writing's by Len Wein, who wrote a fabulous Spider-Man after Jerry Conway left the book in, what was it, 74, 75? Something like that. that. The artwork, uh, pencils by Ross Andrew and inks by Mike Esposito. And believe me, Spider-Man art... Pretty much aside from John Romita. Mm. Um, I love the Romita stuff. Spider-Man visually does not really get more classic and iconic than Ross Andrew and Mike Esposito. So the fact that what I'm taking in, again, in the formation, you know, my brain is at this point still being formed by what it's taking in. And the fact that I am now saying this is what Spider-Man is and what Spider-Man is is absolutely classic and awesome. Um, oh, this was this was a great one. This it's was a, fun. I enjoyed reading this. Yeah. And the best thing about it, I thought, the entire, the absolute most perfect thing about this issue, we get an appearance by the Spider-Mobile. Yes, which, which, <laughs> I, I mean, so basically I've been aware of the Spider-Mobile as long as I've been aware of Spider-Man. So the fact that it's this, like, joke and footnote in Spider-History to just about everybody else, to me it's just like... No, it's his Spider-Mobile. I don't understand. Why? When you actually started actually reading the books, like years later when I actually started buying them, just uh-huh. just to fast forward real quick, were you confused going, where's his car? Yeah. Yeah, I never understood, you know, like, 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 why, where did the Spider-Mobile go? Why? Now, but the fact is, and, and, and just to get back to what you were just saying, so now we have, like, the earliest impressions, and I guess my baseline point of reference for what Spider-Man should be in its purest form is sort of set by this flavor of Spider-Man that we're getting here in Amazing 159. Now fast forward to today, and for the last, what, four or five years, that Dan Slott has pretty much been the head Spider-Writer. Oh, yeah. um, the fact is, I... Love it. I mean, I buy Spider-Man month after month after month. I buy everything that Dan Slott writes. As a matter of fact, I, his run on Spider-Man has been so awesome that I'm actually now buying Silver Surfer. Only I'm, because he's writing it. Quick aside, I'm loving the new Silver Surfer series. I'm liking it, um, but frankly, I, I, I'm, I, re, I read the first three-issue arc all at once. And I find a lot to like about it. Um, it's, I don't like it as much as I like his Spider-Man stuff. And I think it's partially because, um, I've always had difficulty loving Mike Allred's art. Okay, well, yeah. The the Allred's art, I can see. I I like it. 
but I can see that being a problem for a lot of people like it. Yeah. And and but it's a, so stylized, right? It's not exactly something where like I'll, the majority of people are gonna go, oh, okay, cool. No, you you're know gonna what? either love it or you're gonna be like, uh, okay. I respect Mike Allred, and from an objective point of view, I mean, look, I mean, I've da- I'm dating myself with every issue I bring up. I have no problem admitting I'm 42 years old, and I've been reading comics. Uh, regularly, I mean, clearly I've been reading them since I'm four. I've been reading them regularly since I'm 13. I have enough frame of reference, a wide enough frame of reference to look at Mike Allred's art and appreciate what he's doing there. I just, and I shouldn't say just Mike Allred because Laura Allred as like the sort of finished artist and colorist yeah. is an equal partner it's in both. the Allred art experience it's like, it's like the Dodsons yes exactly it's kind of both of them doing stuff together I don't really know if there's a difference between the two Dodsons together or just the one yeah yeah no exactly or the folios Phil and Kaya folio yeah <laughs> oh Stanley and his monster I forgot about that oh and um, um, and not just that uh, 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 Agatha Agatha Heterodyne, Heterodyne uh, uh Girl, Girl genius. genius. Thank you. Oh, my God. Anyway. Anyway, tangent again. Tangent. Getting back. My point is is that uh, about Silver Surfer is just simply while I can appreciate it, I can love it. Also, uh, about a, a week ago, as of the recording of this podcast, Dan Slott put rather a lot of effort into trolling the uh, Twitter uh, regarding his uh, like pretending ignorance of Doctor Who, despite the fact that he dedicated issue three of the Silver Surfer to... Um, uh, Russell T. Davies, and pretty much uh, copped, eventually copped to patterning Silver Surfer, the new Silver Surfer, after Doctor Who, and that you have a strange itinerant wanderer in oh, space yeah. and a human companion, you know, who's... Especially doing that with, like, when the versions of Doctor maybe a little less humor, a little less humor, so you have the, the companions nope. a little more. Exactly. Which 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 sister is, the compa- is, is with the Silver Surfer? Is it Dawn or Eve? I can't remember. I think it's Dawn. Um, I think it's Dawn. Anyway, I guess the point is is that um, so after he spent a week, it, I didn't read actually read issue three until after I'd read uh, until after this trolling experience of Dan Slot <laughs> on Twitter. So I guess I went into that ep- that issue expecting it to be a little more Doctor Who-y than it wound up being. Yeah. It's still very much Silver Surfer, and Dan Slot is doing a fine job. But there's nothing that will negatively impact your enjoyment of something, regardless of its empirical value, than violated expectations. You go in one, expecting one thing. Yeah. Even if it's the greatest thing in the world and it's not that thing, or then you're going to feel disappointed. Or even if your expectations are completely wrong and you're expecting something else. No, right, I said exactly, it, yeah. I said it before, another tangent again, except I said it before, a lot of times my favorite example or my best example would be the movie Snakes on a Plane. Mm-hmm. I remember a lot of people. There's a remember when that came out. There's a big hub of blue about it. It was a big thing on the internet. There's a yeah. lot of viral things, and people are like, "Oh my god!" And I remember hearing a lot of people complaining about the movie afterwards, about like the content, like how mm-hmm. it was, and all that. Like, oh, it was just this movie was full of snakes. It was just a stupid movie. I'm like, what did you expect? <laughs> did you expect friggin' Citizen K- Citizen Kane? It's was, right there in the title, people. The <laughs> I expected Samuel L. Jackson. To be cursing <laughs> and to be fighting mother, mother snakes on, on a mother, mother plane. plane. Exactly. And guess what? I got that and I thought it was awesome and I had a blast. I was not expecting high, high art or quote unquote cinema. Right. I wanted a cool action movie of Samuel L. Jackson beat the crap out of snakes. Did, were there snakes? Yes. Was there a plane? Yes. Was there Samuel L. Jackson? Bonus. Yeah. 
Now, I would think, you know, and that's what I expected. Just, you know, just like I don't expect, you know, Scarlett O'Hara to pick up a machine gun and start blowing people away and chucking grenades at the Union Army if I'm watching Gone with the Wind. Although that would be kind of cool. Well, yeah, and I would actually probably watch the movie. I I was going to say that I would watch. Without falling asleep, you know, within 10 minutes or wishing I was asleep. But anyway, but... You know, you can't expect every movie to be, or every comic to be the same thing. And sometimes you have to go in without expectations because not, something, nothing is going to live to it. I mean, sorry, no matter what our feelings are about it, mm-hmm. I don't think Star Wars Episode One would... Now, maybe if it was different, people would have had a lot more... A lot of more people would have a lot more warm feelings. I know lot, so there are people who like it, but I know a lot of people don't. But I think after like 15, 16, 17 years, however long it was, of waiting for another Star Wars movie... Nothing was going to meet our expectations. Uh, I, st- I, 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 I'm not saying, therefore, that this is, you know, this is the best we were going to get. I just think nothing would have met our expectations because we've been building it up for almost two decades. It was an uphill battle. Well, no, we're not going to get. Believe me, I could spend 45 minutes just expounding upon the 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 very legitimate. Um, storytelling flaws in yeah. The Phantom Menace. But we're not going to go there. But I'm just I'm, saying, there's an example of expectation. No, exactly. But It was just, it had to fight it Okay, over. backtrack. Anyway. Like, I'm going to walk this one back. So yes, you are absolutely right that I can see the roots of Dan Slott's take on Spider-Man yes. here in uh, Amazing Spider-Man 159. And I think that it probably has a lot to do with why I have been so consistently and exceptionally uh, pleased and entertained by Dan Slott's run as master of Amazing Spider-Man because it is everything I want out of Spider-Man and those desires were formed here in 1976 reading. Yeah, because especially Superior Spider-Man, like you said, that's the genesis almost right there. So moving along to my next foundational book, um, the next comic, chronologically speaking, that I can remember getting, and there's a chance it wasn't new when I got it, uh, Incredible Hulk number 217, which is cover dated uh, November 1977. That said, I believe the Incredible Hulk television show started in 1978. The cartoon? Oh, no, no you mean the live action. Live action, right. Uh, somewhere um, around there, 77, 78. So it was 77 or 78, and I was an instant fan. It was my favorite show oh, I when I was a show. child. Um, as To the point where, here's a, a little personal anecdote from the childhood of Brian Zeno. When first grade, the uh, Halloween of 1978, I believe this was, um, uh, I dressed up as the Incredible Hulk. I had my mother paint me green. Oh, okay, so it was... Homemade, not one of the store-bought ones. No, 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 the plastic no. mask with the cheap tape. No, 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 no. I, I wore, I wore a, a ripped-up Miami Dolphins jacket because it was green, mm. and I had my mom paint my face green, and I went to school like this. This was very much. Uh, I was very much at, dressed as the Lou Ferrigno Hulk. Oh, real quick. Yep. Incredible uh, Hulk show. Uh-huh. Uh, there was a pilot movie on November fourth, nineteen seventy-seven. Okay. There was a pilot sequel on November twenty-eighth, seventy-seven, and okay. then it actually started in March seventy-eight. Okay, so I was so this would have been in seventy-eight that I was the huge fan of this show, and I know that was my first exposure to the Hulk. I got in trouble that Halloween because I got really into character, as a six-year-old is wont to do, and responded <laughs> to my teacher's queries with roars. 
God, I wish yeah, I got, video. Yeah, I, I got in trouble for that one. Anyway, <laughs> uh, digression over. So I'm pretty sure that I got my hands on this issue of Incredible Hulk, which clearly came out before the pilot was on TV. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure that I wound up with it in my hands after. Probably afterwards. After the... Um, uh, I was into the TV show, so the the this is it's called uh, the Circus of Lost Souls, and the story concern the story it's by Len Wein again. Yes, and I have to say, even with thirty years of uh, uh, distance, or actually now getting on forty years oh, yeah. of uh, removal and 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 uh, separation from this being new, I've got to say that Len Wein remains for me one of the first really great modern comic storytellers. It's like all the guys, there were guys who were great before him, from Stan Lee to Roy Thomas to Jerry Conway, but they were all working in a certain Stan Lee-ish, Silver Age mode. Len Wein's writing is the earliest comic book writing that I can point to, even with my brain of 2014 and all of the experience that goes with it, that I can point to Len Wein's writing in the 1970s and say that is both comprehensible and accessible to my modern mind and good and, like, quality comic book writing. Okay, so you're saying, like, you're saying, like, the other ones, even they started near the beginning of the Bronze Age were more still Silver Age-ish writers. He's listening, we would say, the first Bronze Age I would say, you at least, right, fun. exactly, the, the first right that I could really access, that I can get there from here, that I can say, wow, I can recognize that as the behavior and speech of people I could... Like a different, like a difference in the tone and the way they... Like, right, like, exactly. Yeah, I would put, yeah, I could say that, I could see him and I would also put in like Gerber, Steve Gerber and uh, Jim Starlin as Bronze Age writers who were, you know, they weren't Silver Age writers or Silver Age writers who were able to adapt to it. Funny that you should mention that because I will say that both of them grew into that. But at, as of right now, my um, exposure to both those writers is I am currently uh, working my way through the Avengers versus Thanos uh, trade paperback. Which Ooh. starts out with Iron Man fifty five and just basically works with the whole Starlin verse. Actually, I've not, and to be fair, I haven't read that one yet. And actually, well, I've read one of Gerber's earlier issues, which was a scripting an issue of Incredible Hulk. Mm-hmm. He only did the; it was plotted by somebody else. He just mm-hmm. did words. He just. Did I've read too much of their earlier stuff. Most I know of them is the later seventy stuff. Right, and that's what I'm talking about. And maybe so that's right the now... voice I'm thinking of. Actually, is. They're the Howard the Duck warlock voice where they were just doing something very different. Not right. It, they were still very so they were Roy just... Thomasy. Oh, okay. In, well, no. Now it needs to be pointed out that at least the early the issues of Captain Marvel that, that, that came after Iron Man, the issues of Captain Marvel where we really got into Thanos versus Captain Marvel, we got the whole uh, uh, thing with the Super Skrull, and that winds up with that whole trippy psychedelic... Uh, Starlin is clearly on something yeah. uh, uh, a bit where Captain Marvel gains his blonde hair and becomes not the warrior but the protector. That's right, he could uh, blonde. Yeah, exactly. That happened. It, I think it was Captain Marvel number twenty nine. But anyway, my point is, and then we go to this whole bit with Moon Dragon and Daredevil. There was a few issues of Daredevil one hundred five, one hundred six, one hundred seven, where uh, Daredevil meets Moon Dragon and uh, gets into. Uh, uh, her whole proxy war against Thanos. Did he sleep with her too? Was he? Did he sleep with her? No, he did not. Really? He was still very much with, um, I think he was still very much with 
Black, uh, Widow. Black Widow at this point, although Black Widow appears to have something going on with a cop. I have no idea the continuity at Not this point. Not surprised by that part, but I'm just just real quick right. because Daredevil sleeps with everybody. Right, and my point is though the, those Daredevil issues were written by Steve Gerber, although there was clearly some Starlin plotting going on in here. But it's still, again, like I said, a very Jerry Conway, Roy okay. Thomas voice. But this is 1973 still, so still very early. Yeah. Len Wein, who wrote both that first issue of Spider Man and that first and this first issue of Hulk that I read. That's what I can point to, although it does need to be pointed out that those being the first two comic books that I read, perhaps the standards by which I judge comic book writing were very much formed by those earliest reading experiences. So anyway, so I'm reading this issue, and it's written by Len Wein. The penciling is by Sal Buscema, and the inking is by Ernie Chan. And as much as I want to give Sal Buscema credit, his, his run on Hulk absolutely iconic oh yeah and his his body of work over 40 years at marvel comics yeah you have to respect that said this issue i want to give special props to ernie chan because i can now look at ernie chan's inking in this issue it has a lushness and a solidity um an almost uh, joe sinnott level of solidity that does not um, uh, really, you don't normally uh, associate with Sal Buscema art. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's a little... Sal Buscema, you think of, I'm thinking of even his 80s Hulk work. Or and then Spider-Man. Spider-Man in the 90s. Yeah. You're not thinking of it as very lush and, and pretty. And as much as you're getting that classic Sal Buscema face... Yeah, in this... oh, yeah, his faces are very familiar. Um, did he ink his own stuff in the... Yes, that, the Spectacular like... Spider-Man run was definitely his own ink. Yeah, because his, his... Then I can definitely see a difference. I mean, I saw a difference, so I wasn't sure exactly what it was, but I can see it here, because his inking is a lot heavier. Right, exactly. When he inked himself, you can see the lines a lot more clearly, and it was a lot thicker and a lot... Dark, Ernie, a bit darker. Well, Ernie Chan, who also went by the name Ernie Chua, and I'm actually not sure which is his actual name and which is his pen name, but um, that guy actually is best known to my mind... Um, as the uh, he inked a lot of John Buscema's art in Conan the Barbarian and Savage Sword of Conan, the black and white Ooh, stuff in yes. Savage Sword that was very lush and very painterly, for lack of a better word, yeah. even within the black and white artwork. Oh yeah, those early, especially the early Savage Sword, those are awesome. Yeah, those are that is stunningly beautiful gorgeous work. visuals. So that's you can really see that influence. But yeah, I can here. see yeah. So just just to give a really quick overview of the plot of, of Incredible Hulk number 217 here, um, the Hulk, having just finished a, a fight with something called a bi-beast that I have no idea who or what that is. Um, Keep reading Thanos stuff. He'll show up there. Oh, good. Fabulous. He works for Thanos a lot, but I love that name anyway. He's just fun. It's just great. But um, he, he, he washes ashore and wanders through the woods and comes across a bunch of circus freaks, basically, uh, fat woman named Blossom, a thin man named Stilt, a Rex the dog boy who's kind of uh, hairy and werewolfy, and a midget midget named Major Minor, (laughs) and and then a beautiful mermaid named Mariam. Yes. And he takes up with them, and they're being, they have escaped from the Mastermind's circus. Ringmasters. Ringmasters. Sorry, not Mastermind. Ringmaster. The guy who hypnotizes with, yes. his, with the spinny on his hat. Maynard. Maynard, yes. That's his real name, actually. I, I, I remember that from somewhere. Peter David Holt. 
Right, exactly. But um, uh, he, uh, the Hulk takes up with them and he feels accepted by them and he falls kind of in instant love with Miriam, yes. who seems to fall in instant love with the Hulk as well. And they basically get captured by the Ringmaster Circus folks. They get taken back to the circus and then uh, Major Minor manages to uh, bust the Hulk out of his hypnotized state by saying, Miriam's in trouble! And the Hulk's feelings for Miriam's are so strong that he busts out. Yes. He winds up uh, taking uh, Miriam away back to her home in the sea, and they part on, you know, kind but sad terms. And the Hulk, this is what sticks with me, because remember, at this point, I'm watching the TV show. The last page, he walks away from from the beach, sadly, recedes into the distance... And oh my God, this is absolutely 100% Lonely Man music playing in the background. And it's and again, this was came out was written and produced before the TV show was done. But oh my God, it is the perfect Incredible Hulk ending, and it's slotted perfectly. Yeah. Now I read this one as well yesterday because it's also on the Marvel website. Okay. So I read this. I like this one. Uh, I find it amusing, actually, in, just in story, that so many people had no clue who the Hulk was. Yeah, yeah. Who are you? Considering yeah. how national news he had been since his early appearance. Well, you could sort of figure it for these people because they're in a circus. They might not... Yeah, but also, they were in the circus with the ringmaster mm-hmm. and the circus of crime... They had the Hulk as part of their circus before. You think they would have been stumbling with a set of story, yeah, or yeah. they would have heard about these things, or you know, one of them would have grumbled about the Avengers or something. Now, I I first encountered the Ring. Well, I, this was my first encounter with Am the I Ringmaster, a- clearly. Okay, but I have recently read the Ringmaster's early appearances in the Steve Ditko Spider-Man, and I love that in this issue. Like, I love going back to there, and he's still palling around with Princess Python. Like, she's still, like, his right-hand woman. Yeah. I, and I love that here, now we're, this is, like, uh, 15 years later, and she's, it's still the Ringmaster Circus, Princess Python, the, the, the rotten clown, you know, yes. <laughs> all that stuff. Yeah, who gets a, I know he got a revamped years later in a very short-lived series, but I thought it was great. The clown did? Yes. Really? In the 90, late 90s, early 2000s Deathlock series. It was part of Marvel's M-Tech line. Okay. There was a Deathlock series. There was a Warlock series. Not Adam Warlock, but New Mutants Warlock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was something... Oh, M-51 Machine Man. Oh, yeah, yeah, title. yeah. Now, is M-51... I know, is that, the, is that Aaron Stack? Yes. Or actually, X-51. X, oh, because I'll, I'll be honest with you. Because that was his title. Yeah, that was his name in the, when he first appeared in, by created by Jack Kirby right. in the 2001 series. Yes, which I know now, but frankly, Aaron Stack, a.k.a. Machine Man, is and forever will be, in my mind now, oh, a yeah. member of Next Wave. And Yes, well, that no, for me too, but this, was pre, this predates Next Wave as yes, well. Yes, yes. But this was shortly after he had been an Avenger briefly. and But yeah, in the Deathlock series... The clown is used as like a hitman, and he is definitely revamped. He's a bit more, bit wacky, but not Deadpool wacky. Right. But also right. a very a lot more deadly. What's and the name? Of, what's the name of the clown? What's the name of the clown adversary from Spawn? Like that guy, Violator. Violator. <laughs> not that level either. That guy oh, okay. was really, really wack, bit wacky as well because he was so uber powerful. He probably could. Yeah. But this clown was a clown. He had the clown motif still, and he still looked mostly like the clown, but a bit more dirtier. Mm-hmm. But he was a lot deadlier. Okay, I could see that. Um, but anyway, real quick, I just find it funny they didn't yeah. know who the Hulk was, especially since I have to wonder, were they part of the circus of crime? I mean, were they criminals for him too? Or did he just happen to also pick up random 
circus performers, whoever was capable, but he, but he had a core of, you know, because it wasn't just his main guys who were the circus of crime. It was most of the circus. So I have to wonder, right. were they criminals? I mean, if so, probably, should they have known? He, was, he probably picked them up with an eye towards, because they all appear, have abilities. Yeah. Um, especially still, who's so skinny he can get through bars. He's probably a fabulous infiltrator. Blossom could be, the, the fat lady could be good muscle. Um, so I'm sitting here thinking that he probably picked them up with an eye towards making them part of his circus, but they picked up on that and escaped before he had leveraged them or brainwashed them or that. blackmailed them or whatever it is that he did that works too. to turn them into his minions. No prize for you, sir. Thank you. Hi, I, I, that's my first no prize ever. And not my, you know, I, I have actually been in uh, letters columns. Um, oh, I wish I saw those things in front of me. So I think you're a keeper of the flame. I'm trying to remember. Who, me? Yeah. Uh, Do you remember those ones that used to have the, t- the titles of like people who like someone who reads more than three Marvel mags a month? Oh, I don't remember that. No, where did that come from? Oh, was was that in the old... 60s? 70s. 70s, okay. It was in a bunch of old Marvel comics from that time. They would have like little titles for people. So, uh, but this was, this was, and I think the other thing I want to reference about uh, Incredible Hulk number 217 before I move on is um, I really want to, uh, there, again, I'm five or six when I'm reading this, and the core of this issue is very much, wow, we look different, we're outcasts, we feel like outsiders, but we all, you know, everyone is, is, is a bit of an outsider, and we all accept you. There's a theme of acceptance of the outsider and acceptance of the other in this issue oh, yeah. that I think absolutely had some sort of ide- foundational ideological or philosophical impact on my brain because Lord knows when I was six years old, I was not one of the more uh, popular kids in class. I was, you know, I was one of those kids that all the other kids picked on, yeah. you know, so I felt like an outsider. I think I must have really identified with this and seeing this theme so well presented, again, kudos to Len Wein. Um, kudos to um, uh, that this theme of acceptance is so strongly presented here. That had to have had an impact, and I really want to point that out. Um, The other real early one that I'm just going to reference very, very briefly, and also to make good on my earlier promise of uh, not all Marvel all the time, (laughs) is uh, Superman number 321, which came out in 1978, and was part of an, uh, a multi-issue arc, but I'm not sh- 100% sure now where it began and where it ended because there were issues around there. The main adversary in this particular one was the Parasite. Okay, yeah, because this one, I haven't, obviously, it's not on Marvel's side. Right. So I didn't read it, so I don't, rec- I don't remember this one because I don't have this issue. It was uh, uh, written by Marty Pasco. Art was by uh, Kurt, Kurt Swan, uh, classic 1970s of course. Superman art. Anchor was, um, I believe, Frank Caramonte, who I remember doing uh, late 60s, early 70s uh, inking for Marvel as well. But um, the, the basic premise is that uh, the Parasite figures out a way to uh, uh, jack all of Spider-Man's... Spider-Man. See, that's the, my... All of <laughs> Superman's superpowers up to 11 without the ability to turn them off. So it drives Superman a little nuts because he's like he, he can hear everything, he can see everything, he can't... It's sensory overload. Yes, yeah, sensory overload. Uh, the cover date is March 1978. 
Um, and the only reason that I remember it so strongly, not just because it was the first Superman comic that I ever read, although, again, I think due to Super Friends and other cartoons and just, you know, American culture in the 1970s. Probably the movie, too. Well, no, this this predated the movie, I think. Okay. But I think you definitely had um, some... Every kid who was alive then had some sort of inkling of Superman and his world, yeah. who he was and, and, and what he could do and all that. But the reason I, I remember it is because there is a subplot where the parasite goes to a Professor Hadley and he wants some sort of information from the professor. So he disguises himself as a student, corners the professor and sucks all the knowledge, like presses his palm to the professor's oh. forehead and just basically sucks every knowledge, every thought out of his head, leaving him a vegetable. Oh, wow. And for late 70s comics in general, and for a six-year-old in particular, that is such a bit of gruesome body horror, basically. That's a horrible bit of real, like, oh my God, what just happened? That is amazingly intense and gruesome and, and, and icky. In, in, in an intimate, almost intimate yeah. way that just squicks you down to your core. I love that next panel where Superman calls him, you filthy scum and blasts him through the yeah. knocks him through the wall. Yeah. I like, real quick, side, this will be very fast, I like when Silver Age, like, or early Bronze or Bronze Age Superman gets pissed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because then you can, even though he does all this world juggling anyway, all of a sudden you just see everything of his go up as well. And and yeah, no, exactly. And and I remembered this moment. This it was seared on my soul. It was so horrific. It's like one of those when you're a kid and you watch horror movies and yeah. you, it just it stays with you. But then as I grew up and I got into this whole, I became a Marvel zombie as I grew up. And I really looked over at DC and I always sort of had this sort of view of DC as one of the reasons I didn't gravitate towards DC comics as more squeaky clean as it were. You know, a little less gritty, a little more squeaky clean. But then I go back and I looked at this thing that I remember so clearly from my child and I'm like, no, that is an erroneous view. It, they, DC, even in Superman, even in the iconic mom and apple pie Superman, they were giving him some pretty intense, awful villainy to fight against. Yeah. And so that was some pretty good stuff. And I have to say, and just, I'll wrap it up by saying the reason I have no idea where this falls in the storyline is because there, I think the issue before this involved Solomon Grundy rather than the Parasite. But I think it was actually tied in narratively to this one. But I'm not sure how it how it all and I'm not layered sure. how, together. How good a story could be about a guy who just wants pants? Yes, I know, right? So, uh, well, apparently this was the intro. That was the introduction to the Earth Two Solomon Grundy. This is all pre-crisis, yeah. crazy multiples. Yeah, stuff, either, so. yeah. Wait, are you uh, like? Was he crossing over? Or was this like an extra second Solomon Grundy? I think this was the introduction of. I think. My understanding is this was supposed to be, hey, look, it's Solomon Grundy. You, all of you longtime readers know who he is. But then in retrospect, as they crisis it up in the 80s, they look back on this and realized, hey, wait a minute, that Solomon Grundy is so very different. That has to be a different Solomon Grundy. And they retconned it as a, this was the, actually the first appearance of the Earth 2 Solomon yeah. Grundy or well, whatever. Well, yeah, they do, they, yeah, sometimes what happened was a character crossover or sometimes they would introduce another character or sometimes they would just use him and completely forget that this guy's from this world, this guy's from this world, they're not going to meet. Yeah, exactly. So this is in its own completely separate little universe altogether. Yeah, I, I have no idea how that worked. Wait so, till you read stories about the Super Sons. So um, I know I'm sort of uh, uh, monopolizing here because my thought was going in chronological order, and I think all of your first issues post-date 
mine. So well, all but well, my issues I bought. Okay. At least I think the one of my, my Spider-Man one I read was predates yours. Well, you you did mention that you actually wound up for thanks to your uncle. I believe was all that you yes. tell the story, but it was Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man number one nineteen. Yes, I had an uncle who. Now I'm not sure if it had to do with his job. He did something with recycling, but. He did something for cycling, but he also had like a bunch of comics that were actually in decent condition. But mm-hmm. also, and I think he was just getting ones because he thought they were good investment ones to sell. But he also had a bunch of ones that have been returned. So they would the return at the time where they would slice off the top part of the cover mm. and send it back, and then the issue was there for whatever. It's supposed to be thrown out, but you know most people just gave it to somebody to read for free. Mm-hmm. So he knew. I was a pretty voracious reader when I was younger. I don't remember exactly how old I was when I started reading, but I know I was reading by the time I got to kindergarten mm-hmm. because according to my mother, she was all crying at the fact that I'm going to school and I went and saw books and went over and started reading and ignored her. <laughs> That's awesome. So, <laughs> a by, man after my own heart. By it's at least like, four, I was reading. Yeah. Mom, books. Ooh, books. Bye, Mom. I- <laughs> So That's I had a awesome. bunch of book comics that were, you know, either he would give me all the ones that were ripped, mm-hmm. or like the cover's gone, or if he had doubles of ones... He would give me them. And I remember one of the earliest ones I had was Amazing 119, which is actually the part one of a two-part story right before a little death of Gwen Stacy, Gwen Goblin right, you story. Had this, this two-parter where Spidey goes to Canada and fights only, the Hulk. Only part one. Right, right. No, I'm saying 119 and you had 119. Yes. 119 and 120, he's in Canada fighting the Hulk. 121, the night that Gwen Stacy died. died. Yes. <laughs> so I'm right before it. And in fact, I never even had 120. I reread it last night, 119, but just to stick with my, to keep uh, knowledge of whatever happened in the next issue away, I still haven't read 120. I'm going to do it this <laughs> week now, but up until now, I have never read issue 120. So, mm-hmm. and it's actually funny that yours were sparked. I haven't either, frankly. Yeah. In my in my reread of Amazing Spider-Man from the very beginning, I'm currently, I believe, at issue 61. I'm at 15. Okay, so. <laughs> but actually, it's funny that your first two issues were... Um, that you bought were Spider-Man and Hulk. Uh-huh. And Amazing 119 is about uh-huh. Spider-Man and, and the Hulk. Fighting the Hulk. Oh, look at that. Look so at we that. Got, I got a little bit of both at that time. And it was fun to get the Aunt May, um, of course, illness. Uh, actually, at the time, she was staying at Dr. Octopus's house up in Westchester. Oh. But he was in prison. Okay. And there was a bunch of mobsters around, but they're his associates. Because uh-huh. Aunt May never notices anything. Aunt May is the most clueless person in the world. Oh, Aunt, you know, it's like I was always extraordinarily irritated with Aunt May until JMS got his hands on her. That is the one Aunt May I like. I love JMS Aunt May. And I have to say, I'm a fan of Slot's Aunt May too, although not as big a fan. I haven't seen as much with her, so I can't say. But after what I read shortly after the JMS run mm-hmm. ended, I was like, okay, well, we should have just killed her. Yeah, JMS this is pointless. JMS's Aunt May and Ultimate Aunt May are very similar characters, and they are both friggin' awesome. And I do have to say, and the Ultimate Aunt May is good. The Sally Fields Aunt May in the Amazing Spider-Man films is strikes me as very much a JMS slash Ultimate type of Aunt May, yeah. and that's why I like her a lot. And it wasn't so much she knew, it was just the fact that she was a character as opposed to a caricature. Right, she, she was strong, she had a life and agency of her own. She wasn't just there to be this frail object for Peter to, 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 to reel Peter in when he had somewhere else to be. Yeah, after the first two or three years of the original run, 
then I it's mean, like then it you know then it stops being interesting and it's like okay mm-hmm. here we go again another heart attack Aunt May's gonna die Aunt May's too weak to deal with anything though how did this woman live right through the depression that really started to when wear on everything me. bothers her it's like oh my god there's a bug in the house I'm gonna have a sh- I, I don't know how to deal with this in my life yeah and even by the end of the Ditko run that was starting to wear on me yeah. so I do have to say so can we um, kill her now please yeah yeah so but but no but but, but anyway so there's the, so that was already part of it so that's one of the earliest things I knew is that somehow Dr. Octopus was involved with his life mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and there's also the hint of the Green Goblin knowing about who he was yes because yes. his appearance by Norman Osborn real quick and also Harry having issues as Harry faints in Peter's arms which sounds a bit more homoerotic than it was and um <laughs> And Norman Osborn starts screaming, get your hands off my son. See, I didn't know about the whole Norman Osborn. I knew Norman Osborn was the Green Goblin. I didn't get into the whole Harry and Norman knowing who Peter was stuff until uh, much, much later when in Mar- the Marvel Tales reprint, Ooh. I read the famous three-part uh, comics code-free drug storyline. Where Harry starts popping pills. Yeah, exactly. And I read that in Marvel Tales reprints in the 80s. Yeah. So that was when I learned of that whole storyline. In the 70s, I had no idea of any well, of that. I didn't know what was wrong with Harry originally reading this, or if he knew, but right away, as soon as Norman Osborn takes him away, Peter Parker's thinking, oh, God, I hope Norman's not remembering he's the Green Goblin, because then he's going to remember who I am, that I'm Spider-Man. So right there, I'm like, oh, well, the Green Goblin knows who he is. Yeah. Because he just told me. Yeah. But it was a fun story, and also him conning J. Jones Jameson to sending him to Canada so he can uh, deal with something that's Aunt May's issue, but also that's how he fights the Hulk in Canada. And that was amusing. So... That is a lot of my Spider-Man thought right there of, Ooh. you know, Peter, you know, Peter was good. He was smart. He was not, he was a decent person, but he also was a bit mischievous because he cons JJJ into sending him to Canada yes. on the Bugle's dime. Oh, yeah. And Joe, Jane and is is this gruff jerk, but also not the brightest of bulbs who, if you... you Makes know, you wonder how he became this publishing magnet. Or at the very least, somebody maybe later on I realized was a bit obsessed. Because the moment Peter Parker says, what if I get you pictures of the Hulk pounding Spider-Man in the red and blue toothpaste? He goes, what? Oh, yeah. Oh, Here the, you, off you go. By the 70s, his obsession was actually ratcheted back a bit. Look at, look at like I said, right now I'm at about issue 61. The In the 60s, uh, uh, not 1960s, but the issues, 60s issues of Spider-Man, um, uh, of Amazing Spider-Man... He, like, John Jameson and Captain Ned Stacey are all saying, yes, yeah, Spider-Man's fine. He's not a murderer. And and J. Jonah Jameson is like, I know he's a murderer. And it's oh, like, he's like, holy. He's like, in the mouth. Right yeah, there. holy mackerel. Like, by the 70s, they'd actually ratcheted that back yeah, a bit. Issue 60s. Those were on the tablet issues, right? Yes. Silvermane. Yes. Yes. But um, now, real quick, before we leave the 70s, I want to mention one other uh, important bit of uh, uh, foundational comics dumb that I, I almost forgot about. Power Records. Did you ever have any of those as a kid? Yes, I had the Fantastic Four one, which is the way it began, mm-hmm. which is the origin, and the Captain America and the Falcon with the pow- with the Phoenix. That's one of the ones I had. It turns out to be Baron Zemo's son. Baron Zemo's son. The name of your destroyer is Phoenix. Same difference. They're both in Arizona. Like, oh, it was such great stuff. But I, I also that. had... They also had... Um, uh, I also had the Incredible Hulk one, which was one of the early 70s issues with the Herb Trimpey Hulk with the big teeth. Yeah. It was the issue uh, where the Abomination and the Rhino team up to try to take over Gamma Base. And I remembered that one too, so I might have had that one as the well. The Hulk saves everyone, and General Ross gives him like his thanks and apologizes for hounding him, just as uh, Colonel Armbruster like, cages him. 
And yeah. it's like, it was such a tragic ending. And it ends with like a cliffhanger on a power record. And you're like, what? What? Exactly. Yeah. And the other, That's why I do have that one there. The other real quick one that, uh, the other two power records that I had that I want to mention, I had Werewolf by Night and The Monster of Frankenstein, Ooh. which were both fabulous and both unbeknownst to me at that early age were introducing me to the glorious wonder that is Mike Plug's horror artwork. Oh, yeah. That guy is amazing. I for almost, never mind me, I didn't have those two, but I did have the Spider-Man one where he faces the man-wolf. Ah. John Jameson. Yeah, John Jameson. Good stuff. So anyway, those also really sort of uh, 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 fixed in my brain at an early age. And to be as quick, two things I got from my uncle, which I feel lucky about because I know some people have had trouble finding these things, were a couple of the treasury size books. Now those were like, those the, were super. They were like a Life magazine size. Oh, okay. I think I had the. I think so, I had the Treasury edition of the first of the first issue of GI Joe, a Real American Hero. But clearly, that was yes, many years there later. There was a Treasury edition of that one. They also did a first issue of Star Wars. Was that size okay? As well, and then they did a regular size one. But yeah, they were like bigger than if you have like a what are those things called the DC Absolutes. Volumes, okay. Know, those, those, those. They were even bigger than those. They were like a foot tall. Yeah, like, yeah, they were huge. They were huge. And most of them were reprints, but occasionally they did new because Batman vs. the Hulk was a treasury book. Okay. The, the original, I know at least the original Superman Spider Man crossover was a treasury. Was that the one uh, where. that the one with Luther and Doc Ock? I think so. Okay. But anyway, so I had a couple of treasuries from him. Real quick, I just looked up they were. I had the Marvel Treasury Special Giant Superhero Holiday Grab Bag from 1974, which reprinted the Black Widow story from Amazing Adventures 2. Okay. Uh, Daredevil number seven, which I believe is the first red costume Daredevil, and when he fights Submariner. Wow, okay, yeah. Fantastic Four 25 and 26, which is the FF and the Avengers teaming up to take on the Hulk. Okay. And Marvel Team Up 1, which is a Christmas story with the Human Torch and Spider-Man against Sandman. Okay. So, and I have to say... That also probably started one of my preferences for being able to have the this, the books be bigger mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. I love the way they look in that large size. That's one thing I like about reading digital. Sometimes you can have the panels be larger. Yes, and that's yes. one reason why I like reading like like the over when they do oversized trays where like it's not just oversized in thickness but in height and width. Mm-hmm. I like those because it looks bigger and I like reading that way. There also was Marvel Treasury Edition number twelve. Which was a Howard the Duck one. We printed a few ah. of his early appearances in Fear and Man, Giant Size Man thing. But it also had an original story about Howard the Duck running for president. Interesting. I've heard about that. Oh, I even have the pin. He got he got he got some votes, didn't he? Yes, he did. <laughs> I even have the Howard the Duck campaign pin. Man, the only the only fictional With only the fictional quote, get down with his slogan, get down, America. The only fictional uh, presidential run I remember is Pogo for president. He ran for president every four years. Yes. And I think that was part of a claymation special that they put out in the early 70s. And, oh, man. Don't forget Opus and Build the Cat. Well, I on a future issue of Four Color Fanboys, I may need to take some time and wax uh, rhapsodic at length about my adoration of Pogo Possum. That's fine. We must have talked about treasuries and you know power another time. But yeah. also the other two I had were two DC ones, both Legion of Superhero ones. One was the limited collector's edition C forty nine, which reprinted the first two part story where they fought Mordred the Merciless. Okay. And then all new collector's edition C fifty five, which is all almost all brand new material. Oh, interesting. With I believe I'm trying to remember who did it because I didn't write that down, but I believe it was. Um, Cockrum art, I believe. Oh. I, I know he did a lot of work on Legion of Superheroes no, before he came over it was to... Either, uh, no, I'm sorry, not Cockrum. Grell. 
Mike Grell. Because he was the person who followed ah. Dave Cockrum. It's the wedding of Saturn Girl and Lightning Lad. There's a lot of cool stuff. Plus, at the end, they have like five or six pages of all the Legionnaires, who they are, real name, home planet, powers, in the order they joined. Can I tell you, that's interesting because I have some passing awareness of a lot of DC stuff. Although I've never been a DC reader, I have a passing awareness of a lot of Superman and his extended uh, horde. I know a lot of uh, Batman, um, Teen Titans, Justice League, Flash, Green Lantern, Green Arrow. Um, I, I learned a lot from reading Justice League International in the 80s, Yes. in the late 80s. But I have to say... I've always been aware of the existence of a team called the Legion of Superheroes, and I know that their existence is veteran. I know that they've been around since, what, the 50s? Late 50s. And, they predate the Justice League. And, and they've been around. I have to say, it's amazing that even at this late stage, I am almost completely ignorant of the Legion of Superheroes, of who, who's in it. Like what their what their basis is, who's in it, where they come from, and who they fight. I know almost nothing about. Was that the group that Superboy was a member yes. of? Superboy was a member. Okay, so that's the group that's from like the thirtieth century or something yes, like that. Yes, they're from the future. And also, you might have if you ever read anything of them, you might depending on which version you read, you might notice some similarities because. The Imperial Guard from the X-Men, that I knew, which was created by Dave Cockrum after he left the Legion to jo to go to Marvel, was basically done as like a homage or a version of the Legion. They especially like that early version. They were very much similar. He pretty much just copies like, okay, this is this, this is this. They had so much fun doing that with the uh, uh, to the uh, Justice League with the Squadron Sinister, and then later the Squadron Supreme. I guess they said, let's do it again with the Legion of Superheroes. I remember reading that, but I remember also being like, eh, because I didn't know any of the Legionnaires, uh, so I could not look at the the Shayar Imperial Guard and say, ooh, that's that and that's that. Yeah, in fact, they're member Timberwolf, who is has animal like power, like animal wolf like powers and mm -hmm. claws, and gets very feral does predate Wolverine. He did the Wolverine thing before Wolverine did. And I, it's, I think they paid homage to that because I believe the big first um, showdown between the X-Men and the Shi'ar Imperial Guard uh, inside the Uncron Crystal, yes, I believe that's the point at which Wolverine rips off the Imperial Guard... Uh, uh, um, Fang. Fang. He rips off Fang's uniform and co-ops it for his own and that's like the sort of genesis of wolverine's later brown uniform that was supposed to be his new costume from things i read but then they ended up putting him back in the blue and yellow and then later on they're like haha we put him back in the brown anyway because now we rule the universe but that but... was designed to be his new costume yeah but yeah no that's and that was it's a bit on timberwolves but yeah so and actually that did set up a lot of love for the Legion, cause I, and also the fact of time travel stories for me, because mm -hmm. both of those are time travel stories. Okay. And in fact, one of them is a time-changing story where, where history gets changed, and then they have to go back and fix it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and also cosmic-level beings, you know, use, you know, using people. So that kind of started, I think, my love of... I like the street-level stuff, too, like the Spider-Man stuff, you know, mm -hmm. which is a lot, you know, a lot of street-level. But I also do have appreciation for this crazy, cosmic, you know, this guy caused, you know, history to be changed. And before we forget what it's really supposed to be, we have to go fix it. I think I've only very recently become aware of the, not, I, I don't want to say conflict, but the different, the fact that there are, that those are considered two different flavors of comic book story, cosmic versus street level. I think it's only in, within the last couple of years that I've become aware of that dichotomy. And I have to say, I definitely have a strong preference for street level stuff. I mean, as much as I'm enjoying right now, as I said, I'm reading the Avengers versus Thanos 
uh, trade paperback, and I am acquainting myself with the whole Starlinverse part of the Marvel Universe, and Lord knows that's about as cosmic as cosmic gets. Yeah. I do have to say that um, at no point am I, like, connecting with it or loving it the way I love. Like, for me, to this day, I think perhaps the pinnacle, weirdly, as much as I'm a Spider-Man loyalist, for me the pinnacle of comic book um, uh, quality for me is the Brian Bendis runs on Daredevil and Avengers in the 2000s. Okay. And you look at, like, every time the Avengers got into it in a big, like, multi-level battle with the Hoods thugs or whatever on a street in Manhattan, like, that to me is what it's all about. So for Those me, are... I'm always going to go to street level. Yeah, and that's fine. Like, for me, I go back and forth between both depending on what I'm reading at the moment or mm-hmm. what I'm in the mood for. But I, I enjoy both. So I'm always fine with, you know, great, we're going to deal with this kidnapping story over here and uh-huh. then... This guy is going to try and, you know, uncreate the universe. Yes, I know. That's... <laughs> hey, you know what? To me, both are bad. Right, exactly. So uncreating the universe sides. is definitely bad. I'm going to go on record as being against that sort of thing. So I can dig, <laughs> so I dig both. So that that's probably the genesis of me liking all that stuff because that's all in that Second Legion treasury. But yeah, I love those treasury size books. So now I'm going to fast forward a bit and we're going to get into the 1980s. Yes. Um, uh, which is when now all of these comics that I've referenced so far in my own personal history were given to me. Obviously, I'm a five, four, four, five, six years old. You're not buying your own comics. Your parents are buying them for you or they're giving to you by teachers or whatever. Yeah. So now fast forward to 13 years old. I'm, I'm in eighth grade and a friend of mine, okay, not even a friend of mine, a person I knew who was in my grade. And if you're listening, Brian Rosen, uh, you changed my life without even knowing it because I don't even think you liked me at age 13. But he was really into Spider-Man. And a number of projects, when you would do like art projects or whatever in class, um, his always had a Spider-Man theme. And something about seeing his Spider-Man related output raised something in the back of my head. And this is right about the time I'm getting an allowance and starting to make my own purchasing decisions in life. So I toddled on over to my very first local comic store. I don't even remember how I grokked that it was there, but Heroes World at the Echelon Mall in Voorhees, New Jersey. And I walked into there, and I have such clear memories of the the, the back of the store where the comic books were. There was a spinner rack, and there were... um, It wasn't shelves per se, but it was sort of a wall unit with comics placed upright in it and you would draw them out vertically oh, cool. I don't know what you call that but um, uh, so I would uh, I walked back there and I remember very clearly buying uh, Amazing Spider-Man number 268 cover dated September 1985 um, and two issues of Web of Spider-Man both uh, 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 issue 5 which was cover dated August 1985 and issue 6 which was cover dated September 1985. Now, I need to point out, Amazing Spider-Man number 268 and Web of Spider-Man number 6 were both uh, related. They were Secret Wars 2 tie-ins yes, um, dealing with the building that the Beyonder turned into gold. And you place the two next to each other and they created a single panoramic... Oh, really? Um, the they created a single panoramic cover. The cover of Web of Spider-Man had uh, Spidey in his... Uh, red and blue costume and the cover of Amazing Spider-Man had him in exactly the same pose but mirror imaged in his black black costume 
Now, I read yesterday as well the, the amazing issue, because mm-hmm. that one, you said you also read the next two, right. where you find yes. Fire Lord. Yes. I read those. Now, the issues of web, however, those issues are not on the Marvel Digital site, so I mm-hmm. wasn't able to read those. But quick question then, yeah. I, from what something he said in that first one. Is that web issue, besides the fact that that's where the building turns in the gold, right. because an amazing already was gold, yes. is that the famous Spider-Man teaches the Beyonder to use the toilet issue? You know, it might be. I'll be honest with you. I did not go back and reread these before uh, we did this podcast, so I remember it in the broadest strokes, but I do not remember it in uh, in the specifics. It might be, but that did not honestly leave a very much of an impression. Actually, and you, you, you point out the other thing. So then I was hooked, and I started collecting. I had that collector's mentality. Ooh, yes. I want to have all the issues. I need that And next. I bought... Amazing Spider-Man number 269 and 270, the next two issue was a two-parter where he fights Fire Lord, the Herald of Galactus. Now, at this point, Amazing Spider-Man is being written by Tom DeFalco and drawn by Ron Friends and inked by Joseph Rubenstein. This is not, I don't know that this is remembered by any but the most uh, uh, involved of comics historians as a particularly memorable era of Spider-Man's I think creative I history. Most part, I mean, I know a lot of people have some issues with the Fire Lord story about how the fact that he was able to defeat a Herald of the Galactus. Mm-hmm. But I do think that at least a good portion of the run is remembered as being good. I think it is well remembered, but I don't think, like, the way, like, most people, you point to, like, classic eras of Spider-Man and you get Leon Ditko, Leon Romita, oh, yeah. uh, Wine and Andrew, um... You get McFarlane. You get uh, Roger Stern as well. Or several Roger, years before, it, like two forties, two thirties, two fifties, because that was yes. the whole Hobgoblin thing. And I have only started to sort of dip into that era because clearly this is where I picked up is shortly after that. Yes. But my point is, again, it might be bi- I might be biased on account of these were the earliest issues that I read, but. Um, so that might have you know influ- that might have set a standard against which I'm judging everything else. But I have to say, uh, to this day, the the Ron Friends Joe Rubenstein art holds up for me as um, good Spider-Man art. I read these, like I said as well. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed all three issues, and honestly, the least because I'd heard about the the Fire Lord's fight. Right. Honestly, up until the very end, where he somehow beats Fire beats Fire Lord up, Fire Lord was kicking the crap out of him, and it's kind of like the Juggernaut story. Mm-hmm. Sort of where you know the, if you read that one where Spidey fights the Juggernaut. I have actually just the, that, the two-parter just, by Roger Stern, which is just Juggernaut walking and Spider-Man just jumping at him, hitting and bouncing him, bouncing off. Yeah, basically just getting his ass kicked without the Juggernaut even trying until he lucks out. Mm-hmm. Here it's kind of the same, except it's Fire Lord chasing him, Spider-Man just running for his life the entire time. It just forgetting that last page where he actually somehow beats him, mm-hmm. which could have just been changed to him at least starting to hold his own, and then the Avengers show up. Uh-huh. I enjoyed those issues a lot. Really good, well done. I thought they were fun. They were enjoyable. I was having, I was reading like one a.m. last night. I'm like, I know I should go to bed, but I'm still reading. And you and you can see how you know this would. I would have read this and said, yes, this is marvelous. I will continue to read these. Oh yeah. And here we are, um, thirty eight years later, thirty nine years later, and I'm still, you know, not thirty nine years, uh, nineteen eighty. 29 years later, and I'm still, yeah, I know. But anyway, my point, the point I want to make about the Fire Lord issues is I'm going to disagree with you on the ending. It worked for me, and here's why. 
because as you point out, he spends most of those two issues getting his ass, you know, kicked up and down Manhattan Island by Fire Lord. But the fact is, and I always love this when it comes up in the comics, a lot of adversaries, because he's so skinny and because he's so mouthy and because he's so brainy, a lot of people do often overlook the proportionate strength of a spider aspect of Spider-Man's power set. And the fact is, when it comes up that he is actually holding his own physically against strong opponents because of that proportional strength of physical strength of a spider this was my first exposure to that the fact is he you know fire lord comes down to earth and as fire lord is wont to do remember he did this back during the uh, beginning early days of the dark phoenix saga as well yeah um uh, when Fire Lord comes to Earth, he gets pissed for no reason. Spider-Man dick. feels uh, uh, obligated to move him off planet. Yeah. You know, just get him out of here. And what I loved about it is he got so, like, pissed off. Spider-Man got so pissed off that it wasn't, he didn't overpower him in strength. He overpowered Fire Lord with ferocity. At righteous ferocity. And I loved that. I loved the way at the very end of the storyline he has basically gotten so pissed off, like he just pummeled, pummeled Fire Lord into submission, not with not with raw strength, but just with ferocity. I'm angrier than you. I am going to hit you more. I'm not, I'm not going to hit you harder. I'm going to hit you more. And then the Avengers show up and they're like, nothing to see here. Spidey's taking care of it. I loved that. And maybe... That's a function of the fact that I was 13 and did not have a huge oh, frame yeah. of reference, but I loved it, and to this day, I still have a soft spot in my heart for those two issues, Amazing's oh, 269 I, and 270. I did enjoy how it went, just real quick, before, you know, because this debate could probably go on for hours about yeah. that one. I just felt that, um, and I did think at the very least, Spider-Man should have been stunning him a bit, mm-hmm. but for some, but, and Spider-Man is quite strong, and I am well aware of that, you know, that he does have the strength as well, besides the speed and the agility and all that fun stuff and web shooters. But Fire Lord's power level is high enough that he functions in space without any protection. And on those things like that, and blast apart, can almost blast apart planets. Mm-hmm. That, why I feel like Spider Man should have been stunning him at least. Mm-hmm. And it's not just, you know, so it's not just like nothing happening to him. But still, I think it's like the equivalent of a grown man being attacked by, let's say, a nine year old. Or an eight-year-old where this kid's just hitting you so fast and you're like, okay, okay, whoa, 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 like too fast for you to think. And maybe you're getting like a little bit like, ow, that's starting to hurt a bit. I don't think though that, but I still think like that where I don't think he was getting his ass knocked out. I think Fire Lord should been like, what the hell? And like not even able to react. Mm -hmm. And because I'm getting a little stunned, I just think he was at a powerful level and a vulnerability level high enough that it shouldn't have knocked him out. But it should have been stunning him enough that the ending still would have been with the Avengers being like, yeah, Fire Lord, hold your ass up now. Uh, yeah, Spidey pretty much took took you down, more or less. You know, still take him down without actually beating him complete. But that's kind of also a function of stories where, you know, Thor fights Galactus and he's fine because he can take on Galactus. And then the next issue, Thor fights the Mongoose. And has trouble. And is getting his ass handed to him because it's kind of the function of the story. I hear a similar issue there where Spider-Man, you know, goes to, can take out a Herald Galactus, but somehow he punches Hammerhead in the head, and that apparently is so strong that it doesn't give Hammerhead brain damage. You know, the the metal in his head doesn't give, Hammerhead doesn't get brain damage, and Spidey's in pain. You make an absolutely legitimate point, but what I will say, and I'm going to claim, since it was my issue, I will claim last word on it. That's fine. Um, 
<laughs> what I took away from that was, uh, uh, again, the same way that the message of um, inclusion and acceptance in Incredible Hulk 217 resonated with me and, and you know, sort of stuck in a foundational uh, uh, philosophical and ideological place in me. I think a, something similar happened here, that to my 13-year-old mind, what I read, what the message I got out of this was, you know, even the most powerful opponent can be beaten if your cause is just and you are passionate enough about it. That's what I took away from it. And, you know, to this day, none of the rational and completely intellectually legitimate points that you bring up undermine that <laughs> fundamental message that I got away from that. No, and I can see that. And I can actually still agree. And I do believe that it would have gone if they kept going on. Eventually, I do would believe that Spider-Man would have beat him, mm -hmm. just maybe not in the exact way they shown. Mm -hmm. I think there would have been a little bit more brain power if Spider-Man used would be oh, more possible for me. Possibly, but I do believe that Spidey is like Superman in that there are some of the characters where they do the their their basic of the character basically is uh, right makes might. Yes, yes. I mean, as much as people compare, like when they do the comparisons of like you know. Super, you know, like one character to the other, like who's stronger, like Superman, Hulk, or things mm -hmm. like that. If you're talking ideologically, I think it's a lot of times people are like, oh, Captain America and Superman, because they're like the patriotic type heroes. Exactly, yeah. I think it's more Spider-Man and Superman are very much ideological. Yeah. The same person, very much. They are very much, they have those very strict lines of what is right or wrong. Yes, very just, the, very moral. And the very... things they won't do, and they're very much one of the most altruistic characters out there absolutely absolutely and, and uh yeah. real quick the last two i'm going to reference very quickly before uh, i turn the rest of the podcast over to your uh, uh uh issues um at the same time again because i was getting this collector's mentality and loving that there were so many different spider-man books the third of the spider-man books that was out at that time was peter parker the spectacular spider-man so i picked up the two issues that were current then as well um issues 105 and 106 cover dated uh september and october 1985 uh this was a two-parter in which uh spider-man teams up with the wasp to um uh, fight Paladin, who I don't remember who had hired Paladin. Oh, okay. You know, he was a mercenary, you yeah. know, a, a mercenary with a mouth. He was like Deadpool before there was Deadpool. Um, and I don't remember why they were fighting him, who had hired Paladin, and why they were fighting him. I just remember the artwork. This was a uh, script's word by Peter David, but I wasn't yeah. really like appreciating that. I didn't appreciate Peter David until the four issues that immediately followed this, which was the death, the death of Gene DeWolf. DeWolf. These were the two issues that immediately preceded that. All I'm going to say about that is that the um, artwork uh, is what I remember most about those. Uh, the penciling was by Luke McDonald and the art, uh, inking was by Brett Breeding. It was, again, thick and lush, Joe Sinity. In did they that do way. the covers? They did the covers as well. I like those covers. Like They're, yeah. Um, Janet Van Dyne was gorgeous and sexy and scantily clad in one scene. And again, I'm 13. And on top of that, never was a more classic Peter Parker face drawn. With the, the hair, the eyebrows, the chin. I mean, that's Petey. Oh, yeah. That is absolutely Petey in every specific. And I just, the artwork stuck with me. So basically, at that point, I was stuck for life. Drifted away from Spidey shortly thereafter and became an X-Men loyalist for a while. But at the end of the day, I came back to Spidey, and here I am. Yeah, um, yeah. I wasn't able to read those two either because they were also like the web or not mm -hmm. on the Marvel app or website, which I'm hoping they are soon because I really want to read those Peter David ones. I want to, but I did see, I did look up the covers. 
So that said, Al, I turn the rest of the podcast over to you because now we need to get to the first issues that you bought under your own uh, Steam dollar, as it were. Yes. Well, the first one I actually remember buying on my own predates still my collecting. It just was like a one-off thing of somehow me going, ooh, I want this. Mm -hmm. And actually, it was an issue. It was a uh, Marvel book. Okay. But it was a tie-in book. Or not really a tie-in book. It was a thank you, the licensed property. And it was a issue of the Star Wars series they were doing. Ah, Near the end, it was Star Wars number 103 from, let's see, was it January 1986 is the cover date, so it was probably late 85. Okay. uh, Written by Mary Jo Duffy, penciled by Cynthia Martin. And I remember reading that and just... At first being a little confused and then mind-blown because it had nothing to do with any of the movies. Mm-hmm. And this was really before there was a lot of Star Wars expanded universe stuff. Mm-hmm. I believe... This you know, pretty much was the Star Wars expanded universe. Beyond the Splinters of the Mind's Eye uh, novel, which came right. out like oh, in Oh, which I read and I loved. Oh, you take me back now. I read yeah. that when I was in grade school and I loved it. Yeah, I read that years ago. I don't really remember much. I'll have to reread that at some point. But yeah, this was pretty much it. So this takes place after Return of the after Return of the Jedi, and Leia is kidnapped by this group, this new alien race, and they're supposed to be like the they have something. There's like the new Sith Lord. I and it was like I don't really remember much about it, but I remember I liked it. So and it was fun, but it was like a nice one-off thing of cool. I have the Star Wars comic, and I read it a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. And yeah, when you when you have that one comic, you just read the crap out of oh, it, yeah. don't you? But it's been so many years, I don't know if I still have it. i got to find it one of these days. But anyway, fast forward now, a few years later, at that time I was living you know, living in one city. A few years later we moved, and we were, I was in Bayonne at the time, and now okay. we were in the suburbs. Okay. And this is around the point where I had some other books I was reading, and actually I'll jump back real quick to one of the books I had gotten from my uncle, which was Power Pack Number 3 Okay. by Louise Simonson and June Brigman, mm-hmm. which everyone everyone knows about. You were famous. a lot of female writer-artist teams in your yeah. background. That's very interesting to and me because accident. they weren't... I mean, as many, Louise Simonson, Joe Duffy, you know, June Brigman, Mary Wilshire, there were a lot of them working, but they weren't exactly thick on the ground in the 80s, so yeah. that you were, like, had such a disproportionately high percentage of them within your Just, like, experience. You That's cool. But yeah, so there was Power Pack, and actually Power Pack 3, which I read over and over and over again, was the first book, comic that I actually thought about. I said, wait, this is number three. That means there's other issues. Mm-hmm. I could buy another one of these <laughs> and have more than one to read. And where I was now living in the suburbs, there was now a comic book store within a 10-minute bike right away. Uh-huh. So I was able to get my butt down. That's all it and takes, actually man. And actually go to a bookstore and buy it. So everything I've done, every comic I bought, everything podcast-wise I'm doing now mm-hmm. could all be laid to rest at the blame well, there's other books still closet. <laughs> it. It's the blame of Louise Simonson and June Brigman because theirs was the book that made me go, hey, there's more. Mm-hmm. I could buy another one of these. And so I went out, and the first one I bought actually was Power Pack number 33, because that was the newest one, which ta- which was a few years later. It's like 86, I believe. I don't have the date in front of me. Mm-hmm. But 33, and it's also a crossover, because it has guest stars Sunspot and Warlock from the New Mutants. Ah, yes. Fresh out of it. This is their appearance in between issue 8 of Fallen Angels and issue 60 of New Mutants, where they rejoin the team. Now, uh, a complete tangent here. I'm looking at this issue here, and I want to point out the artwork. This, more than any other, if you ever need an object lesson in um, the importance of the inker, you remember that whole bit in Chasing Amy? Yes. Um, where, uh, what's You're the name? You're a tracer. Banks, bank, uh, Banky. Banky is like, You're a tracer. He's like, I'm not a tracer. And it's like, they make that joke. They really aren't, because no. this, this issue. 
The artwork uh, pencils are by John Bogdanov and ink is by Hilary Barta. And the artwork is kind of rough, kind of not very consistent and not very, um, I find it not very smooth and attractive, like to my eyes. About a year later, John Bogdanov would pencil the four-issue Fantastic Four versus the X-Men limited series, inks by Terry Austin, and that artwork is smooth and gorgeous. I love that. I love his artwork in that series. So it makes it just makes you nothing against Hillary Barta. Story-wise, I mean, she's doing the job and she's doing it well. But I'm saying, man, you want to talk about what an influence an anchor can have? Oh yeah, and Hillary Barta's work later on with I believe it's the same person I'm thinking of with Alan Moore mm-hmm. on. Uh, Doing uh, creating Splash Brannigan, okay, which is like a Plastic Man s character okay. of Alan Moore's for his uh, uh, his run of comics he did that included Tom Strong and Leo Extraordinary Gentleman, mm-hmm. America's mm-hmm. Best mm-hmm. Comics. That mm-hmm. was it. Yeah, ABC. Oh, Hillary Barta worked for them. I'm Interesting. pretty certain Hillary Barta was the uh, was the one who did Splash Brannigan with him. Okay. Although I actually thought I remember reading that that Hillary actually is a man. Okay, okay. Well, that that could but that could, could very be, well be. But it could be a different person as well. But although I was confused, so anyway, I like this issue. It was still mm-hmm. fun, mm-hmm. and it was them, you know, fighting, you know, teaming up with and fighting a Warlock and Sunspot. Uh, Warlock was fun. I made me really like Warlock from you know reading this because Warlock was just kind of goofy and a buddy. Yeah, no, that's my... who didn't want an alien robot buddy that can change shape and almost anything. It's around about the same time that I first encountered him in Web of Spider-Man Annual Number Two, written by Anne Nascenti with art by Art Adams, Ooh. where he 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 flipped out and he's running around New York and the mutants have to have Spider-Man help him chase him. And he ch- at one point he changes into David Letterman. <laughs> oh, genius! But yeah, go uh, on. Plus, Art <laughs> Adams Warlock was great. Warlock. But also confused. But also, I'm sitting there reading, going, "Wait, their powers are different." Ah, they, the kids pay, they switched up powers at some point, Issue right? 25, although they still have the original costumes, so it's kind of funny. They're wearing costumes because their Power Pack had costumes. They were very stylized. They had these silver boots, mm-hmm. and then their costumes were all pretty much one color with a black thing in the middle, and then in the and then the color of their actual costume had the symbol for their power. power right. So, for instance, Jack here, who was originally Mass Master, he had a blue costume, and he had a cloud in the middle of the black field because he can turn... It changes density, either really dense and become really tiny, mm-hmm. or he could turn into pretty much a cloud. And here he has the gravity power, but he still ha- they still bother, bother changing their costumes for like another 10 issues. So he still has the cloud on his blue yeah. suit. Interesting. But also they had a new member, as well, as far as I was concerned at this point, Franklin Richards. See, and I remember all of this from uh, the Mutant Massacre, which was shortly after this, and there was a crossover issue that involved Power Pack yeah. with Franklin. Yeah, I actually wrote before this. Uh, there was 27 of Power Pack. Oh, okay. Pack. Okay, so this is after the Mutant Massacre. And unfortunately, at this point, Power Pack had gone bi-monthly around 26. Yeah, they, they always did have sales issues. They were monthly, and then they went bi-monthly. But yeah, Power, Franklin Richards was a member. He was Tattletale. Mm-hmm. He had his costume was a red costume with a little eye and a key eye looking through a keyhole because he can you know had the, at that time his powers were pretty much just limited to the prophetic dreams mm-hmm. and he can send his dream self out mm-hmm. so pretty much all the time he was with them he was just in a dream form and you can just see him appear and reappear at will like a little ghost boy but <laughs> and I love the tantrum like throwing the tantrum he's <laughs> yeah he just has this like look of complete disapproval on his face here yeah they they thought a sunspot was an one of their aliens that they fought the snarks and he's yelling why'd you pretend to be a snark <laughs> what the hell is a snark i don't know what you're talking about but this helped also lead me into other things this this led me into going oh new mutants x-men mm-hmm. and this led to my other one of my first issues i bought and started collecting uncanny x-men 227 ah which now was that the big blow-off issue of the fall of the mutants or yep. was that sort of en route that was the last issue that was the one where the, that was the big double issue where they they died they died 
Yeah, that's uh, the one. this is the one with the X Men die in Dallas and go move to uh, Air. No, Arizona. Uh, Australia. Australia. This yep. one, they die in Dallas and they go to Australia. Mm-hmm. And it a cra- that's a crazy first issue to read because it's part three of a crossover or you know mega storyline event yeah. where everything changes. Yep. yep. And you're at the end of everything changing. And it's like you start off the issue of like this news reporter going to one of their villains and crying that they're dead and they're upset. And I'm like, wait, why do the, the bad guys care that they're alive or dead? Yeah, the, just one of those one of one of those moments where yeah, they died and they were so noble that even we have to respect them, even though we're villains with no respect for nobility, kind of a thing. I remember reading this when it was new. This was about the time that I was shifting over to reading X Men, but I missed a lot of these issues. Um, I had actually started reading X Men during the Mutant Massacre and sort of dipped periodically back in. Like a year or so before this. Right, exactly. And I dipped periodically in. So I missed most of this storyline and didn't know who the hell the adversary was, who was the big baddie that they had to overcome by sacrificing their lives. And again, this is the whole cosmic level being taking on and trying to destroy everything. Yeah. Yeah. Again, this is. You know, me, this is one of my formative issues of that. My first issue of X-Men is, you know, not them fighting Juggernaut and Black Tom Cassidy trying to knock over a bank. But right, exactly. Not not even fighting, like, you know, Sabretooth and Mystique. Yeah. It's they're trying to save all of reality and everything's changing around them. And there's, I got them, I mean, Chris Claremont wrote it, Mark Silvestri penciled it, and I love the, the pencils. And let's face it, all of the mutants, like, right around this time, Claremont, Chris Claremont was at his absolute Chris Claremontiest. Yes. In fact, <laughs> I've always said, and it's funny, a lot of people say like that generally your goal, your quote unquote personal golden age is usually the comics you start reading. So like mm-hmm. your favorites are going to be the ones you started reading. My golden age for X-Men is issue 129, which is the beginning of Dark Phoenix, mm-hmm. through this issue. Okay. Everything afterwards I thought was a bit... Scattered and yeah. it was or if, weaker. Or went a bit weaker. Maybe, I mean, they might still have been had good stuff. I did enjoy the Inferno story a lot, but I always thought it was everything was a little weaker compared to that. And it's funny because, yes, this is my first one, but my first issue is the last of that. Like mm-hmm. everything before that, like everything I went back and back issue dived, I enjoyed more, I thought, yes. than anything that was coming out new. Not that I didn't enjoy what was coming out new or love it. I just love that stuff. No, no, I more. agree. This was the point. Like past this point, the, 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 the cat's cradle of storylines that Claremont specialized in kind of started to really get out of control, especially once Jim Lee joined him. And now we've got... Like Storm as a child and Rogue in the Savage Land, and the team is split once up they all went through. Actually, for me, I would have to say the end wasn't here because their stuff in Australia was still pretty good when they faced down the Reavers down there, and they had those two great comedy issues: the Men with the Gene Bomb, <laughs> and then the Girls' Night Out, which introduced yes. Jubilee. Um, the, there, the, for me, the 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 moment that the X Men franchise stopped working was when they all passed through the Siege Perilous. Not this issue, you meant the next time they did. Right, the next time they did. 249 or 248. Yeah, when, when they all just sort of, it's like, we have to do this. Why? I don't know, but we're going to all walk through it and all become different people. And what the hell is going on? I never knew. Here it is. Yeah. Here it is 20 some odd years later, and I still don't effing know what happened. I think there was a, Psylocke, I remember that. Psylocke was given a vision that they were all going to, because there was only four of them at the mm-hmm. time. It was Havoc, Dazzler, Colossus, and Psylocke. And the Reavers were all waiting for them. Yeah, because the original X-Men were all off in, in X-Factor still. And this team had been slowly 
Wolverine was slumming around Madripoor for no yeah. reason. No, I mean, I loved a lot of that <laughs> Australia stuff, too. I just, like I said, I just thought this this period was a little better and tighter. But, yeah, from what I remember is that team, this team had been slowly breaking apart. Storm, because there was only eight members. Right. Well, nine with Madeline Pryor. Right. And then she was gone after Inferno. Right. And then Longshot left to find himself, because there was supposed to be a Longshot series, which never evolved. Right. Um, Storm was supposedly killed. Quote unquote. Right, and then she was brought back by the orphan maker. I Nanny think. and the orphan maker. She was like a she was like in child form. Yeah, but they, as far as they knew, she was dead. So we're yeah. down that Wolverine's running around Madripoor, and Rogue had just been taken away from them through the siege perilous. She, yeah, fighting the Master Mold. Right, that's what I. That's what I'm thinking of. That's the so point down, at which everything stopped making sense. You're down to four of them, and basically, I think. Psylocke was given a vision that if they went back... They yeah, were... and Psylocke became Asian, and it's like, no, Betsy Braddock, English, what the yeah. F are you so yeah, doing? She was given a vision that they were all going to die, and yeah. I think basically the implication is that she kind of went, she was kind of de facto leader. Yeah. It was like, okay, I'm either going to take them all just to be killed, or, and I got the impression that she forced them through it. She mentally went, you're going to go through this because at least you have a chance to live. I think that is probably... Because she's the last one to go through, and she's like tells them she like mocks her. She's like, "They're gone. Where you can't hurt them." Right. I think I think that's what drove like like took me away from the X Men as like because for a time there, right around this point, I had drifted away from Spider Man. I was all about the X Men. I was loving the New Mutants, and then it was like Claremont left New Mutants, and the Louise Simonson New Mutants was oh so not nearly as, as much good. As I love Louise. And it wasn't just that; it was the artwork. The Brett Blevins artwork was not good. Not for that. And the thing is, I enjoyed the series Sleepwalker, which mm-hmm. Brett Blevins did the artwork for, and I thought it was great. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. He and I think there was an editorial edict that they had to make the New Mutants younger. Yeah. Because in the Claremont run, which again, if you want to know my golden age of New Mutants, it's fourteen mm-hmm. through fifty-four, which is the last right. Claremont Claremont issue. issue. The first year was a bit choppy. It's them with Team America and fighting Axe. Let's talk about another one that I read around that time, New Mutants number 45, which was the November one with the uh, with the 25th anniversary trade dress Oh, and on that's it. one th- the picture of Ileana? Yeah, and it's the one in which uh, uh, the kid commits suicide because the his classmates play a prank on him. And his Larry classmate, Bodine? What, yeah, exactly, and he commits suicide because his classmates are threatening to call X-Factor on him, like, just to make fun of him, and they don't know he really is a mutant, and he commits suicide, and Kitty Pride delivers that emotional eulogy and like that just you know i was 14 and it just got down inside yes. me like in a way i don't have words for yeah but yeah, they were treated as like teenagers you know yeah. between the rain will spain was like the youngest of like 13 and the others like cannibals like 18 maybe 19 at this yeah. point yeah he's and definitely then, the oldest he's dating lila cheney yeah and then they bring in the, the when the louise simonson brett bevins run and like I said, I love the weeds because she's the reason I'm reading books. Yeah. But yeah, they were all treated where like the oldest was 12. Right. It was like reading Power Pack, but the difference was they weren't that age before. So it was so inconsistent for me. I was like, what? And and frankly, when Claremont left and Wheezy took over, the dialogue took a hit. Yeah. You know, it was hard. Like one of the things I loved the most was that Claremonty dialogue. And when it was gone... I missed it. I I absolutely didn't. That was the first letter I ever had published in a comic book was actually in New Mutants number... I mean, I kept reading it. So at this point, oh, I, I believe it's the end. In, so did I. I believe... Oh, and God, X-Force was the worst. Because to be fair, but, I, I, my first New Mutants issue I bought was 60 because my first issue I was buying regular was Power Pack 33. Right, exactly. And that's right before that. The first one I bought was... No, sorry, 61. 
So right around Fall the of the Mutants. The last issue yeah. of Fall of the Mutants, Cypher was already dead. Oh, so you didn't even see him get killed, though that one was Until rough. Because him and Wolfsbane were so cute together. Yes. And I, I loved Wolfsbane almost as much as I loved Shadowcat. But um, I just mention it because uh, I, I got a letter published. Oh, man, I wish I could remember the issue now. I think it was 88. I think okay. it was New Mutants number 88. It was the first issue that Forge was in. Not Forge, uh, uh, Cable. Cable. Ca- oh, then 87. That's 87. The first so it, might, it was 87 or 88. Um, it was right around then, and I was complaining about uh, Wolfsbane and about the loss of the accents and the fact that, you know, and, and it's right there in black and white, Brian Zeno. Oh, and, look at yeah, that. Yeah, look, 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 look at that. I was reading then, so I, re- I might have read, and I probably I read the Reliable Column, so I probably read your name before I met you. Exactly. You knew me back when. But I can see so. what you're saying about that, because, like, the, fl- the flavor of the story, because I remember going back, like, one of the first back issues I bought was uh, Uncanny X-Men 205, or is it 207, which is the one where Wolverine is basically on the cover, big, like, John Romita Jr. cover, like, slicing down part of the cover. Is it's that- the issue where he stabs... Where Rachel... He stabs Rachel. That has to be 205 because that was right before the first one issue of X-Men I bought was number 207, which was the one that starts the mutant... No, I'm sorry. Two... Yeah, 207, which was the one right before the mutant massacre. It's the second part of the Nimrod two-parter. Okay, so then it was 205 because I think there also was like a bit of a framing thing leading up... No, no, that's issue 210, sorry. But yeah, there was that one where, he, where uh-huh. Rachel is going after the Black Queen to try and kill her and like Wolverine is like beaten to crap already beforehand he is they are living in the morlock tunnels at the right. time and he is like wounded beyond repair and he ends up stabbing her to keep her from committing murder yes and then she winds up limping around for two issues and then at the end of the nimrod fight she heads off to wherever with spiral yes which tied in with um eventually tied in with, tied in with, with, with long shot and, and like came out of Exca- uh, long shot and eventually wound up in excalibur and do you know it was only in the last year that i because I, I read Longshot, and then I read that, and then I read Excalibur, and only in the last year did I, like, and I never really read any of the other stuff, so only in the last year did I, did I read who, did I find out who Spiral actually was. Ricochet Rita. Yeah, I never knew that until just now. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, but there was supposed to be a Phoenix miniseries, which again, never happened. Which never, is, that's, never that's supposed to go to that. materialized. But actually, that's right. The other one, early one, was uh, X-Men 210, which is right before the Mute Massacre. Those are like two of my earliest back issues I bought. Mm-hmm. And even though I had read one since then and I knew what had happened to the X-Men more or less because I was reading the new, newer issues, you know, 227, mm-hmm. 220. No, the you knew they survived at least. I'm reading those issues and I'm like, are they going to live? Yeah. Like he actually made, I actually was starting to like almost question, will they survive? Even though I knew, well, Wolverine's right there. Yeah. He's fine. He's fine. He's alive. So he lives. But yet they, the, and that was the thing for X-Men for me at the time was the X-Men were in this world of... Basically, they were on their own, and everything was coming after them. Yeah. And you could even see, because even the other issues we were talking about, um, in the New Mutants issue, although obviously New Mutants would tie into X-Men, but in the Amazing Spider-Man Firelord issue, they thought Firelord was a mutie, and, and that's why they were after him. Because that whole thing about mutant hatred, especially, and calling yeah. X-Factor on mutants and everything, was running prevalent through almost every Marvel book they it was It was especially high at that point, I think, because I started, I picked up X... I think that's actually how I got into X-Men. I think I might have gotten into X-Men through... X Factor. Yeah. I think when I think X Factor was the first new series that started and the idea of the, the ability to get in on the ground floor and get an issue one and collect everything oh, yeah. from the beginning was so tempting that I bought the, the tie-ins of Fantastic Four and, and Avengers, Avengers and then I got X Factor number one and I think that's how I got into that. That one X-Men. I started with twenty seven. Yeah. The issue after the last part of Fall of the Mutants. Yes, yes. 
But man, and we could go through the rest of the 80s, but uh, we are really out of time now. But I think we have uh, oh, wow. generated, right. we are, I think we have generated a lot of good uh, memories. And man, this has taken me back in a good way to such good comic books. We had it lucky. I mean, just finding this good stuff when we were at that perfect age. And it just turned us into, in a way, it turned us into who we are today. And look at who we are now. So we can blame um, Claremont and Louise Simonson and, and, and Len Wine, Wine and absolutely for all of this. So bless you all, wherever you are, um, and thank you for everything. So that's going to wrap up this issue of Four Color Fanboys. Uh, please find us at fourcolor.podwits.com. Uh, uh, please leave us feedback um, on uh, iTunes and hopefully, uh, hopefully and uh, and uh, follow us on Twitter. I'm at Kid Chiron. And I'm at Rebus02. And uh, uh, please let us know how we're doing. And until the next time, keep reading those comics. And uh, we'll see you on the next uh, issue of Four Color Fanboys. All right, I'm going to go through this green curtain now. or That green door, I'm not sure which. Uh, oh, no, 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 no. Not the green door. No! Okay.